started a sermon series, and the sermon series is called Truth and Art, Truth and Art. And the premise is this, essentially, that art is a, either a, uh, it may be an auditory or it may be a visual manifestation, essentially a philosophy, right? It's a declaration of, of what someone believes to be true. Uh, art is a declaration maybe of what a particular culture thinks is good or bad, right or wrong, true or false, right? It's a statement by definition of, of, of some claim that they're trying to make. And, and what I want to argue, essentially, is that uh, whatever that artist is seeking to, uh, to claim through their artwork, whether they're an atheist or whether they are a deist or a theist, whatever they say they are, that by definition, that they're actually stating something, maybe not entirely true, but they're stating something that is true because every single human being is created in the image of God, and therefore we can't help but ascribe meaning to everything that we do because we have the fingerprint of God upon us. That's true, again, in the visual arts. It's true in movies. It's true in music. And that's really what we're doing now is we're taking a look at several different songs over the course of the next few weeks. And we're taking a look and seeing what those songs have to offer, what they're claiming. And, uh, and most of the songs we're doing are popular songs. And so obviously something that is found in those songs is resonating with the human soul or the human mind, right? So last week we did Shame by the Avett Brothers. And I think what we found out is that shame is a, is a theme that resonates very deeply with who we are as human beings. And not only that, but it resonates very deeply with our relationship with God, right? Um, we talked a little bit last week about how uh, throughout the history, uh, Christians have, have taken different stances in regards to art. And one of the stances that Christians have taken towards art is condemnation and appropriation. So condemnation is basically, hey, art is bad. We don't have anything to do with it as Christians, right? And uh, so my grandmother, for example, who's this wonderful, godly little woman who grew up as a Southern Baptist in Pensacola, Florida, um, just thought it was absolutely horrible that my parents ever let my sister and I play cards because cards are of the devil, right? And I grew up in the shadow of Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, and you are not allowed to go see not only PG movies, not only G movies, you're not allowed to go see any movies because they were from sort of the art world, if that makes sense. And so the reaction to that message that art is bad was appropriation. And what that was, was where Christians got together and said, well, since the world's art is all evil all the time, it's all bad, let's get together and form Christian art. And so out of that uh, came, you know, music groups like, you know, Petra and Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith and uh, all sorts of other sort of subgenres of Christian uh, art. And it was really an appropriation of art because they, the Christians, we, the Christians, couldn't really live without art. We needed to express ourselves. Now, the other, uh, one of the other ways in which Christians have related to art throughout history, uh, and in particular, probably this is much more likely for those of you in this room, is, is consumption. In other words, most of us in this room simply consume art, whether it's movies and music and media. We consume it like everybody else does, and, uh, and maybe we consume it or probably we consume it with very little critical thought whatsoever. And the idea here is, as believers, we ought to be able to enter into and engage with art, this is point number three, in order to find out what the artist is claiming to be true and good and beautiful so that we can interact with it as believers. It's really what Paul did on several different occasions in Scripture. Now, today... We're going to be taking a look at a different song and uh, taking a look at something in that song, some idea, some concept uh, that resonated with enough people 
that it became a very, very popular song. You'll be familiar with what it is in a moment when the band plays it. But before they come up, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have as a congregation to worship you. I thank you for the opportunity um, that we have to declare truth. Uh, Father, that we have the opportunity to tell people in this room that the Bible is true and it has the authority to tell us what to do. Father, I thank you that you've given us the authority to declare the truth uh, that we are broken, that we're sinners, that we're rebellious. Uh, But at the same time, Father, you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life we couldn't live, to die a death you weren't willing to have us die in order to rescue us both from sin and in death. And so, Father, it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen.
I know we have a, an audience here that varies in age. Um, that song came out in 1969, okay? So does anybody here know uh, who initially wrote that song? Anybody? Raise your hand. If you do, you don't have to answer out loud. But if you know, just raise your hand, okay? All right. It's the Rolling Stones, okay? Uh, two, does anybody, uh, does anybody know or has anybody heard that song before? How many of you have heard that song before? Okay, good. All right. The reason I ask those questions is because I just want to make sure that we're doing songs you actually have heard of because that's sort of the point. Anyway. And this came, it came out two years before I was born. Now, what's interesting is that song, You Can't Always Get What You Want by the Rolling Stones, came out on the B side of a record. All right, now, let me call time out right there. Uh, a record <laughs> is essentially a circle made of vinyl. And on one side of the record would be song A, which is the song that record producers and musicians said, this is going to be the song that is the really popular song. And then side B was on the other side of this circular piece of vinyl. And that's where they kind of put the throwaway song. Does that make sense? Now, what's interesting is this song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, was on the B side of this record in 1969. On the A side was a song called Honky Tonk Women. Maybe some of you have heard it. Maybe you, some of you haven't. Whatever. The point is that this song that we just heard, You Can't Always Get What You Want, but if you try sometimes, you'll find you get what you need, resonated with people, right? So much so that it rocketed up the charts when they didn't expect it to. And not only that, but in 2004, Rolling Stone magazine did an article, and the article was the 500 most influential songs of all time. Not the most popular songs necessarily, but the most influential songs of all time. And You Can't Always Get What You Want came in as the 100th most influential song of all time. Now, the question is this, why? Why did it, uh, why did it become such a, a, a resonating song for people? And the reason is ultimately this, because it deals with a very profound question. And the question is, is there some rhyme or reason to what happens to us individually as human beings? Is there some rhyme or reason to what happens to us? Is there some, some governing force that determines that we maybe don't get what we want, but we get what we need? Because that's the philosophical statement of the song, is that if you try sometimes, you find that even though you're, you're not going to necessarily always get what you want, you're going to get what you need. And the answer to that question, is there some rhyme or reason to why things happen to us, is answered in several different ways culturally. Now, the first way it's answered is by chance. I'm going to put some things up on the screen here. First of all, this is simply a definition of chance from Webster's Dictionary. And so chance is this. It's the way that events happen or unfold when they're not planned or controlled by people. In other words, stuff just happens. Stuff just happens sometimes. And so this would be a view that would be largely a mechanistic worldview, or it would be coming from a scientific worldview, claiming that there's no such thing as, as deity, there's no God, there's only matter. And essentially, in science, most specifically quantum theory and physics, and in philosophy, another uh, realm of thought called indeterminism, uh, is this thing called chance. It's the belief that no event is certain, and that the entire outcome of anything is at best a probability. It's the product, again, of this mechanistic worldview. And so if you guys have ever seen Jurassic Park before, Jurassic Park I came out in like 1992 or three. I don't know. I'm using very old illustrations. I'm sorry. Anyway, 
But in it, there's a character, Jeff Goldblum, who's a quantum physicist, and uh, in order to illustrate this idea of chance, he takes a droplet of water and he drops it on his hand, and he says, which way do you think it's going to go? And it rolls off an unpredictable direction of his hand, and the idea that he's making there is quantum physics basically says everything's just chance, right? And that's one answer to why things happen to you is they just do. Stuff just happens, right? It just happens You can't know why. There's no reason why it just does happen. Now, another answer that uh, culture gives to this question of why things happen is fate or destiny. They're linked. Uh, They're not exactly the same, but they're linked. The definition, again, from uh, Webster's is the impersonal will or determining cause by which things in general are believed to come to be as they are or events happen as they do. In other words, there's some sort of impersonal force would be one option. Or Destiny, which is something similar, is related to it. If you guys have ever seen, uh, what is the movie here that I'm talking about? Yeah, Back to the Future, thank you. That came out in like 1987. It's been so old. It's so old. I'm going to get an illustration from 2000s, from sometime in the last decade, I promise. Anyway, but there's this wonderful scene where George McFly, that's this guy. Back to the George McFly picture really quickly. George McFly right here. Okay, now you can go back to the other one. Sorry, Jack, I apologize. But George McFly um, walks up to his future wife, and of course, both of them, you know, neither of them know this, but he walks up to his future wife, Lorraine, and she's in, you know, some sort of a little soda shop there, and she, he walks up to her, and he says, Lorraine, my density has popped me to you, right? He misuses the word for destiny. And she says, what? And he says, oh, what I meant to say was, and she says, wait a minute, don't you, don't I know you from somewhere? And George answers, yes, yes, I'm George, George McFly. I'm your density. And then he says, I mean, your destiny, right? And again, destiny is uh, this idea that stuff happens, but the reason it happens is because there's some sort of impersonal force that's driving someone to accomplish and to take part in certain things that they can't avoid. Now, what's interesting is in philosophy right now, there's another term that's close to this that's called determinism. And it essentially argues that it's not so much that there's an impersonal force as much as it is that we are simply the product of uh, of certain, you know, biological makeup and there's certain uh, stimuli that exist out in the world. And so, therefore, you're always going to respond the way that your body tells you to respond in the world. Therefore, there's no such thing as free will. So says the determinist philosophers and scientists. One more response to this question of why do things happen to us? And the third is karma. And so karma is this definition here that says the force created by a person's actions that some people believe causes good or bad things to happen to that person. It's this this principle of causality where intent and actions of an individual influence the future of that individual. And so good intentions and good deeds contribute to good karma and future happiness, while bad intentions and bad deeds contribute to bad karma and future suffering. Uh, Here's an illustration. I bought a pair of... uh, of hiking boots that had been used at uh, this Outfitters where I'm from in Traveler's Rest. And I walked in there to the store, and uh, one of my buddies from high school was working in this Outfitters shop, and he had worked at uh, uh, the Nantahala Outdoor Center, and he'd worked on the Okoe as a river guide, and he, I'm pretty sure, smoked some of nature's most relaxing chemicals. Anyway... Great guy, Jeff. Jeff is a good guy. I liked him. And uh, I bought these boots, and they were, again, they'd been like $350 boots. I bought them for, I don't know, 100 bucks or something. And I remember vividly he telling me, he's like, he said, BP, man, you're going to love those boots. They've got some great karma. And he was telling me about, 
the guy that had worn the boots before me is like, they've got great karma. Anyway, and so again, the question is this, why do things happen to you as an individual? Is it chance? Stuff just happens. Is it karma? Because you, you, you do some good things and so good stuff comes back to you. You did some bad things, some bad stuff comes back to you. Is it fate and determinism that you, you just can't control it, but something's going to happen to you and it's going to be scientific or maybe it's philosophical? The question is, what does the Bible have to say about why things happen to you? Look very quickly at Romans eight twenty eight. It's going to be up on the screen. Again, and Brian Carroll did a super job of sort of packing this into Romans 8, the chapter. And, and Paul, in the midst of that chapter, says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been a calling, called according to his purpose. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, let me, let me jump into this really quickly and say, what do we see here in Romans chapter 8. Let me, let me answer by saying, what do we not see? What do we not see in chapter 8 of Romans? What we don't see here is that uh, Romans 8.28 is not saying that all things are good. Okay, it's not saying that all things are good. Now, the reason I mention this is because some Christians treat suffering and evil with a glib but well-intentioned statement like, well, you know, all things work together for good. Or do everything without grumbling or complaining. And essentially what they're doing is either philosophically or just sort of emotionally saying, you know, hey, there's no such thing as evil in the world. Everything's good. Everything's going to work out in the end. And whereas their final premise might be true, what they're essentially doing is they're treating evil and suffering as if it's no big deal. And that's just not true, right? And and philosophers have even done that to some degree. Theologians have done that. Augustine, who's brilliant, and I guarantee you far more brilliant than I ever was or ever will be, argued that, that, that evil and suffering is really simply the absence of good, right? And, and again, I would disagree with Augustine here and simply say this. There are lots of things that have happened to you and to me throughout the course of history that are far more than simply the absence of good in a particular situation. And frankly, I think the Bible teaches that as well. Look at Second Samuel. There's a passage we're going to look at right here. And this is the passage where David, the king of Israel, has done several things that are very evil, right? One of the things that he has done is he had an affair with another man's wife, right? And what's interesting here is the author of 2 Samuel makes it very clear that that action of infidelity, of stealing a man's wife, was not simply neutral, but rather it was evil, and then David had that man killed. And again, what the author Samuel is doing here is he's saying, look, that, that action wasn't neutral. It wasn't simply a bad move on your part, but it was evil. Listen to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil, right? Not, not bad, not foolish. What is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife. That's real evil. That was a real evil action by David. To be your wife and have him killed. That's real evil, right? It's not simply a bad idea. That was an evil action on his part with the sword of the Ammonites. Listen to Jesus interacting with uh, the sisters of Lazarus 
And he discusses something or shows us a picture of real suffering and real brokenness. This is from John 11. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept. Jesus knew that he was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he still looked at death and suffering, and he said, that is not the way that it is supposed to be. That's real suffering. That's real brokenness. It's the product of real evil. The Holocaust happened, right? In the Holocaust, six million Jews were killed by the Germans. Three million men, two million women, and one million children. That was real evil. It was real suffering. Now, the reason I make this point is because some of you here this morning have experienced real evil and real suffering. Some of you experienced real abuse at the hands of a loved one, and that abuse was real, and that abuse was evil. It was. Others of you had parents that divorced or a parent who left And that hurt, that suffering was and is real, and their actions which hurt you were anything but good or neutral. Still others have lost a parent, a friend, a significant other, and death is not good. It's not supposed to be that way. All things are not good, and Romans 8, 28 does not for one moment communicate that. Does that make sense? What it does communicate is that somehow all things do work together for good, right? And that's really what it's talking about. Look, at, look again really quickly at verse 828. I'm going to say it a couple times so it'll resonate and echo in your brain. Again, it says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, right? There's actually story after story, verse after verse in Scripture that make this point. I'm going to look at the story of Joseph taken from Genesis chapter 50. Some of you know this story. But Joseph's dad was a guy named Jacob. And uh, Jacob had 12 sons, and it just so happened that Joseph was his favorite son. Well, that was a mistake. That was wrong of Jacob, right? Dads aren't supposed to have favorite kids. And so this father, Jacob, gave um, Joseph special attention. He gave him a special coat. He did all sorts of special things for him. His brothers got jealous. One day, he went out into the fields to see his brothers, and when they saw him coming, they were so mad and so tired of their father uh, loving him more and of Joseph being a spoiled little brat that they decided to throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery, which they did. He then uh, was, was sold into slavery. He went to Egypt. He went into Potiphar's household. And when he was there, he was falsely accused of something and thrown into prison. When he was in prison, he interpreted a dream for somebody. The guy said, hey, don't worry. I'm going to get you out of here. The guy forgot for two years. And then finally uh, was remembered. And Joseph made his way out of that prison and through a miraculous series of events became a super high-ranking official in Egypt because he was such a great manager and obviously because God was with him. And um, some amazing stuff happened to him. His brothers during the middle of a famine came to visit him. And when they came to visit him, he revealed who he was to them and they were scared to death that he was gonna kill them, right? And we find ourselves here in verse 19 as he responds to his brother's fears that Joseph's getting ready to kill him. Listen to what Joseph says. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? 
You intended evil against me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Does that make sense? I mean, Joseph validates their actions, and he says, yeah, what you did against me was evil. What you did against me was wrong. Your intentions were evil, but the good news is for Joseph, the good news is for his brothers, and the good news is for us today that God intended it all for good because God can take evil and suffering and good and seemingly neutral things, and he can weave them together for good. Romans 8 does communicate that all things, both good and bad, are used by God to create something good. Now, I'm about to go full nerd mode on you here, all right? I'm going to quote a passage from a book called The Silmarillion. This was written by J.R.R. Tolkien. It is the prequel to The Hobbit, right? It's the pre-prequel to The Lord of the Rings and everything else. It's the story of how Middle-earth came into existence. Now, Tolkien was a, a believer. He was a Christian. And so the story I'm about ready to read you is a story of the creation and the fall. There are going to be certain names in here, basically for God, angels, and Satan. Bear with me, if you will. Uh, if I had a British accent, this would be amazing. I've got an English accent. I'm from South Carolina. It's going to be okay, but it's long. Anyway, so listen to this story. This is Tolkien's uh, account of sin entering into Middle Earth and creation. Then the voices of the angels, like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and vials and organs, and like unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of God to a great music. And a sound arose of endless interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights and into the places of the dwelling of God, and they were filled to overflowing. And the music and the echo of the music went out into the void, and it was not void. What Tolkien here is saying is that, is that God ordained that, that all matter and all reality would come into being, that the earth would be created uh, by the voices of song and angels. Never since have the angels made any music like this music, though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before God by the choirs of the angels and the children of God after the end of days. But now God sat and hearkened or listened, and for a great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. But as the theme progressed, it came into the heart of Melkor, the Satan character, to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of God. For he sought therein to increase the power and the glory of the part assigned to himself. Some of these, these thoughts he now wove into his music, and straightway discord arose around him. And many that sang nigh to him grew despondent, and their thought was disturbed, and their music faltered, but some began to attune their music to his rather to, than to the thought which they had at first. Then the discord of Satan spread ever wider, and the melodies which, he, which had been heard before foundered in a sea of turbulent sound. But God sat and hearkened until it seemed that around his throne there was a raging storm as of dark waters that made war upon one another in an endless wrath that would not be assuaged. Then God arose, and the angels perceived that he smiled. And he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began amid the storm, like and yet unlike the former theme. And it gathered power and had new beauty. But the discord of Satan rose in uproar and contended with it. 
And again, there was a war of sound more violent than before until many of the angels were dismayed and sang no longer. And it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at the same time before the seat of God, and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes, and it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its power. And listen to this. But it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. In other words, God takes the discord of the music woven into his music by Satan, and God weaves it into his own to make something even more beautiful. In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of God shook and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, God arose, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands, and in one cord deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of God, the music ceased. Then God spoke. And he said, mighty are the angels, and mightiest among them is, is Satan, but that he may know, and all the angels know that I am God, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Satan, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite? For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Okay, that was a chunk. But Tolkien here is saying, all evil, all suffering from the very beginning of the fall woven into creation somehow by Satan, that God somehow miraculously and amazingly will take every evil action, every suffering, and he will weave it all into a story that is even more beautiful than it ever would have been otherwise. Does that make sense? It's like a good movie. Like you see a good movie, and sometimes in a good movie, you know, it looks like the hero or the heroine is going to be lost to the enemy or to the bad guy, and it looks like it's over, and then all of a sudden something happens, and there's a twist and it's because of the twist that, that he or she is rescued, and all of a sudden, the movie goes from boring to something amazing, and it's precisely because of the evil. It's precisely because of the suffering that it becomes wonderful and great. Dostoevsky in the Brothers Karamazov says exactly the same thing. These are brilliant people arguing and saying that exi the existence of evil and suffering in your life can actually make sense. It can be used by God. Here's what Dostoevsky says. Part of this quote will be up on the screen. He says this, and so I accept God, not only willingly, but moreover, I must also accept his wisdom and his purpose, which are completely unknown to us. I believe in order, in the meaning of life. I believe in eternal harmony in which we are all supposed to merge. I believe in the word for whom the universe is yearning and who himself was with God, who himself is God. I have a childlike conviction that the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over, that the whole offensive comedy of human contradictions will disappear like a pitiful mirage, a vile concoction of man's Euclidean mind, feeble and puny as an atom, 
And that ultimately at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. In other words, what Dostoevsky is saying, what Tolkien is saying, is that all things will work together for the good, for God's good story. Now, the question is, do you believe in a God that's big enough to do this? Do you believe in a God that is God enough that he can take all of the mayhem and all the suffering and all the evil that you've experienced and that you've witnessed in the world, and that he can weave it all together to make something even more beautiful? Do you believe that God is that big? Can God make sense of your parents' divorce? Can God make sense of that person's death? Can God make sense of that abuse that you suffered? And the answer, according to Romans 8.28, is yes, but unfortunately, it goes on to say that it's not for everyone. Again, Romans 8.28 very clearly says this, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, right? What it's saying is that all, not all things are good, but all things work together for the good of everyone, not everyone, but for those who love God. Uh, I'm going to skip an illustration that I had here, and I'm going to move right uh, to uh, a little section that Tim Keller wrote in a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in it, he says this. I'll read it. He says, I prayed for an entire year about a girl I was dating and wanted to marry, but she wanted out of the relationship. All year I prayed, Lord, don't let her break up with me. Of course, in hindsight, it it was the wrong girl. I actually did what I could to help God with the prayer because one summer near the end of the relationship, I got in a location that made it easier to see her. I was saying, Lord, I'm making this as easy as possible for you. I've asked you for this, and I have even taken the geographical distance away on your behalf, God. But as I look back, God was saying, son, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give that person what he or she would have asked for if they knew everything that I know. Let me read that last sentence one more time. God was saying, son, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give that person what he or she would have asked for if they knew everything that I know. Does that make sense? In other words, if you try sometimes, you're going to get what you need when you're a child of God because God loves you. And he's going to do whatever it takes to make you beautiful. Now, I love the fact that Brian Carroll, in our um, section where he you know, read all the different quotes from Romans uh, 8, I love the fact that he had us read all those. That's actually going to be my conclusion today. So, Brian, we are on the same page, which means I'm as smart as a Barry professor. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> context matters. And, uh, and so it's important that you know that Romans 8.28 is in the context of Romans 8. And that's where all those great things that Brian uh, read this morning are found. Let me, let me read those same things again. So in the midst of Romans 8 is this, this claim by Paul, this, uh, this declaration by God saying, all things are going to work together for those of you who love me. And it's found in the chapter where it says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's great. I mean, what, you know, what better statement of love that God might have for us? Verse 15 
Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. In other words, not only is there no condemnation, but you get adopted into the family of God. You get to call God, the creator of the universe, Abba or Daddy. Verse 21, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. More good news, death and decay will be undone by God. Verse 26, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. God gives us his spirit. Verse 31, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Verse 38, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, every single one of those statements is a declaration of good news by God to those of us in this room who are children of God. Every single declaration in Romans 8 is a declaration of good news The Holy Spirit's on your side. Nothing can separate you from God. There's no condemnation for those of you who are children of God any longer. And so the message of Romans 8, 28 in the midst of all of those verses is that for those of us who are in the family of God, those of us who are daughters and sons of God, all things work together for your good and for God's glory. And that is inconceivable. It's amazing to know that God loves you so much that he will weave suffering and neutrality and everything throughout the course of human history for your good today, May the 4th, 2014. That's amazing. I mean, that's something that only God could do to work all things together for the good of his children and for the good of his glory. That's astounding. Now, again, I just read all those verses in Romans 8. Part of the reason I read them is because they're all declarations of forgiveness and adoption and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your part. And again, part of what the Bible does over and over again is it declares the good news to you. And one of the ways in which Jesus uh, ordained that his good news would be declared to us is through this meal called the Lord's Supper. And so there are tables behind you, maybe in front of you. There's a table up in the, uh, the, the upper section. The table on my right has bread and wine The table on the left has bread and grape juice. But in this meal called the Lord's Supper or communion, it's a declaration. It's a declaration of all of Romans 8, really. It's a declaration that Jesus came to rescue you. Jesus came to live a perfect life you couldn't live. He came to die a death he wasn't willing for you to die. And in this meal, there's a declaration that there's now no condemnation for those of you who are children of God. And in the same way, all things don't work together for the good of everyone. They work together for the good of those who, are, who love God and are called according to his purpose. In the same way, this meal is really only for people that are in the family of God. And the way that you're in the family of God is by trusting in his son Jesus alone for your salvation. And so for those of you who have been adopted into the family of God by faith in Christ, I would welcome you to this meal today. For those of you who haven't come to that point yet, I don't want you to... Uh, To be too offended by that, rather, I would love for you to be able to sit back 
and watch the children of God as they celebrate the family meal of God. Uh, Hear the words of institution now as I read them from 1 Corinthians 11. We are told this, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment now and pray. And then uh, when you have prayed and reflected, I'll invite you to stand up and to receive the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the many declarations of Romans 8. And Father, we thank you that there's this declaration, um, particularly in Romans 8, 28, that tells us that you love us enough uh, to use your omnipotence and your omniscience to weave together evil, suffering, good, neutrality, and to weave it all into a story and a narrative uh, which is more beautiful than it would have been without those things, Father. And not only that, Father, but you take all of that suffering and all that hurt and all that evil and sin, and even all those things are woven together for the good of your children. And so, Father, I pray that your children this morning who trust in your Son, Jesus, alone would hear the words of Romans 8.28 and the words of Romans 8, and that we would let the declaration of the gospel sink down through our heads all the way into our hearts, and that we would be changed by knowing that we have a heavenly Father who loved us enough to rescue us from our own sin and to rescue us from death. Father, it is in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray these things today. Amen.